Welcome to Your Undivided Attention. Today our guest is Shalini Kantaya, and she is the director of the new film Coded Bias, coming out on Netflix on April 5th. We actually originally saw Shalini's film Coded Bias at the same Sundance Film Festival that The Social Dilemma premiered at, and we're just excited to have her on to talk about her incredibly important film. Shalini, what is Coded Bias about, and what has you uh, decide to make this film? Uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor to be in conversation around these issues. Coded Bias follows the work of Joy Bellamwini, who's an MIT researcher, and she stumbles upon the fact that facial recognition doesn't see dark faces or women accurately and stumbles down the rabbit hole of the ways in which algorithms, machine learning, AI is increasingly becoming a gatekeeper of opportunity, deciding such important things as who gets a job, who gets what quality of health care, what communities get undue police scrutiny, sometimes even how long a prison sentence someone may serve. These same systems that we're trusting so implicitly have not been vetted for racial bias or for gender bias or that they won't discriminate or have unintended consequences. And these systems are black boxes that we can't question. Oftentimes we don't even know when we've been denied an opportunity because of this kind of automated gatekeeping. And that's when I really realized that we could essentially roll back 50 years of civil rights advances in the name of these machines being neutral when they're not. Everything that we love in our democracy is being transformed by AI, fair housing, fair employment, access to information, so many things. And I think the urgency of that is kind of what inspired me to make the film. And I really believe this is where civil rights gets fought in the 21st century. You know, in Silicon Valley, there's this fixation on the singularity, the place where technology gets better than the things that human beings are best at. And that's the place we should focus all of our attention. What that misses, and I'm really hearing you say, is there are many ways that technology starts to affect us and undermine the places that we aren't looking. And that's the real danger of technology is this kind of invisible rewriting of the rules of our society, the menus from which our lives are being chosen. I know just a couple of the examples, there's the now fairly famous example of Obama, like a picture of his face getting blurred out and an AI being asked, please reconstruct this face. And it doesn't return a picture of Obama, it returns a, a, a white face. If you take pictures of women, you ask an AI to autocomplete, you just show the top half of the face and a little bit of the shoulders and say, please complete the image. Like an AI will show autocomplete the woman into a bikini. And if you have a man's face at the top, it'll autocomplete the man into like, you know, a business suit. And there are all of these invisible ways in which these systems are making decisions about us that I think the film does such a good job of highlighting. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that we think of technology as our gods. And I think they're more like our children, flawed reflections of ourselves and even the things that we don't want to pass on sometimes. And I think the thing that I have grown in compassion for is that bias is not something that's in a few bad people. It's actually an inherent human condition that we all have and is often unconscious to us. And the scary part of when that gets encoded in technology and what was so alarming to me about Joy's discovery of racial bias in facial recognition technology, and she's just trying to get an art project to work, 
was that this was not a technology that was sitting on a shelf somewhere. This was technology that was actively being sold to the FBI, actively being sold to ICE, our immigration officials, actively being sold to law enforcement, with no one that we elected, no one that represents we the people, giving any kind of oversight to that. There are no laws that would make this information transparent to me here in the US, so I actually had to go to the UK with Silky Carlo, who's also featured in the film. And they found that with police use of facial recognition, 85% of the people being stopped were misidentified. And I'm using the most conservative statistics. And I think I sort of almost never have recovered from seeing a 14-year-old child who is stopped by five plainclothes police officers, never asked for his ID, fingerprinted, and doesn't understand why this is happening to him. It's only because there was a human rights observer there that explained to him, you've been wrongly identified by facial recognition. And I think it's those moments in the making of this film where I really see like, oh, that's the moment where technology oversteps on civil rights. There it is. That's the line being crossed. And I think that was um, most frightening to me. What was fascinating in hearing your example was the idea that Joy was discovering flaws in these systems that were already working in police departments or in the FBI, that this was after-the-fact discoveries of consequential biases. I mean, to not even recognize, you said, is it 85% of people were misidentified in the other example you gave? Yes, absolutely. In the UK, a study by Big Brother Watch UK. And that, those are conservative statistics. I mean, it's upwards of 90, some of their statistics around the misidentifications. Yeah. Well, and so the thing that this makes me think of is a similarity between your work and ours is that we could have these systems that are right underneath our noses that are already running our lives, whether it's a Facebook algorithm that's already determining the news feeds that we're, we're seeing or a TikTok already sort of ranking bad content for sexual predators or, or things like this that we don't even realize until after the fact and the idea that we can only tinker with it after the fact. And why wouldn't we have discovered some of these problems up front? What does that say about the production processes? that govern what technology gets out there. Imagine if someone were to say, hey, I'm gonna give you a robotic heart, and then a robotic lungs, and then a robotic liver, and I'm only gonna test afterwards if it's somehow wrong in some highly consequential way. With FDA, or with, with drugs, we have a system to vet drugs and their safety up front before we ship technology. Now, of course, people are gonna balk at that because they're gonna say, well, how else are we gonna have an innovative society that's shipping technology really quickly? But software can be more damaging or more consequential than drugs. And we're seeing places around the world in, in, the, in the Facebook and social media cases where genocides are getting amplified and we're not testing to make sure that it's, it's not doing that. In fact, we're optimizing for growth and distribution faster than we're optimizing for, for safety. And that just seems like a recipe for, for disaster that's represented in, in both the areas that we're looking at. Absolutely. I don't think we've really examined the fact that democracies are picking up the tools of authoritarian states with no democratic rules in place to protect people from its impacts. And I think we're missing the point of humanity because in the making of this film, I've thought a lot of it, what it means to be human. And is the goal of human civilization to go as fast as possible and to be as efficient as possible? And I've thought a lot about what human intelligence is, and I've decided it has something to do with empathy and something with our ability to have compassion. And I think that we're living in an age where 
it's almost like a world with the automobile with no seatbelts and no car seat for your baby where pharmaceuticals don't have a label of how much you should use. It's just a lawless wild west and we don't have any health and safety standards. I'm often asked, don't you believe there are good uses of technology? And I'm like, I love technology. And I think this sort of idea of an FDA is the idea that we should have certain health and safety standards for technology. And the scary part is that this stuff has real impacts for civil rights, for people's lives. And I've seen it in the making of this film, whether you're talking about a school teacher like Daniel Santos, who if you stood like 10 feet away from this teacher, you would know what a passionate, committed, dedicated teacher he is. And yet an arbitrary algorithm says that he's a bad school teacher and we just give it blind faith. And he has to defend himself. He has 10 years of evaluations that say he's a good teacher, but against one algorithm, he has to defend himself. And I think right now we have a system where we deploy these things at scale and then they hurt people and then we pull them back. And I really think that there should be some sort of process of ethicists and policymakers and other people in the room before these technologies are deployed at scale. Mm -hmm. Just like there are environmental impact reports before we deploy technology that affects the you know ecosystem from which we derive our life support, I think we absolutely need societal impact reports. Whereas we put technology into the field that changes the environment from which we draw support, our, our yeah, social environment. And it's not like the harms can actually be walked back. Because once you start down this path, you create a new set of conditions. Like you harm the teachers, they get fired. Then the next time they go to get a job, well, there's already a bad mark on their resume for having been fired by this AI. And so it's it's a cascading set of harms that unless we get out in front of right now, we're just going to continue to live more and more and more in this sort of the detritus of these poor decisions. Absolutely, especially something like facial recognition. I mean, there's one case in the U.S., the only one we know about because there are no laws that make it transparent. And this Detroit man was arrested in front of his neighbors and his family, held for 30 hours in a cell, and never asked for his license. And in spite of that wrongful arrest, the Detroit Police Department continues to use that technology. And that's the kind of stakes that we're dealing with. And it's kind of astounding to me that three black women scientists, who were all graduate students at the time, somehow found bias in commercially available technologies that Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft missed. That's astounding to me. And I think that sort of speaks to what I would call an inclusion crisis in Silicon Valley. When you have less than 14% women be AI developers, I think half the genius of the room is missing. And I think oftentimes we think about inclusion as sort of like the social service announcement, the thing that's like good for the pictures. But when you're trying to control for bias as an innate human condition that we all have and something that we have to be perpetually vigilant about when we're building technologies, having inclusive teams and not just like racial and gender diversity, but maybe not everyone goes to Stanford. Maybe some people come from San Jose State. Maybe some people's first language is in English. I feel like having those kinds of inclusive teams are really important. The other thing I wanna say is, I know that you speak to a lot of technologists and I'm concerned that I see this pattern of independent science that highlights bias being 
dismissed and attacked at these companies. And I'm speaking, you know, Joy's work was first dismissed, the firing of Dr. Timnit Gebru at Google, AI ethics, certainly. And um, I was very heartened to see 2,500 of her coworkers do a virtual walkout and resignations that followed. But what I've seen as a um, recipe for how change works is that we need brave science, unencumbered by corporate interests. We need ethical scientists that can speak the truth and a culture that encourages dissent within these companies so these voices can be heard and these technologies can be made more ethical and fair. Something happened after Coded Bias was released at Sundance that I thought was remarkable, that I never dreamed would happen, which is that IBM said that they would get out of the facial recognition game. They're not researching it. They're not deploying it. They disrupted their whole business model. Microsoft said that they won't sell it to law enforcement. And Amazon said they would put a one-year pause on sale of facial recognition to law enforcement. We're good for like two more months there. But that was sea change that I never thought was possible. And I think that happened because of these brave scientists encoded bias, because of science communication, the public understanding, because I think AI literacy, I can't underestimate how important that is to the public. But I also think it was because engaged people acted on that science and we had the largest movement for civil rights and equality that we've seen in 50 years and people making those connections between racially biased invasive surveillance technology in the hands of police and the communities that are hurt and brutalized the most and have the most to lose. And I think that the more that we can encourage brave science, science communication, and and activism based on science, I think that we have a moonshot moment to call for greater ethics in these technologies that will define the future. I'm curious, what kinds of pushback do you get against the film when you screen it at big tech companies or, or elsewhere? I think the most common thing is that that'll some somehow kill innovation. And I think that's actually the opposite. I think that when you change the business model and you create health and sta- safety standards, it, it unleashes a new type of innovation. And I, I wonder sometimes what it would mean to design technology not for efficiency, but around the inherent value of every human being, if that's even possible. And that could mean that we need a slower approach to technology. And I know that's not what technologists want to hear, but I think often too that when I talk about bias in artificial intelligence, especially to technologists, there's often this impetus to say, it was just the data set. It was just garbage in, garbage out. We'll just fix the data set and then everything will be fine. And I think that I really want to resist that because it's not about building the perfect algorithm. It's about building a more humane society and changing our entire way of what the technology is doing and trying to make it in service of our humanity instead of us being, for better words, like enslaved by our technology to its clickbait and to its bells and whistles. And I think that there's a whole different way that these systems can work that we haven't even begun to explore. I don't think here in the U.S. we even know what AI for public good could look like. But you're speaking our language on so many levels, I completely agree. I mean, there's certainly, I want to make sure we credit, there's a lot of people who I think who have been working on public interest technology for a while, but I do think there's an imagination gap. 
And one of the things you talked about earlier is, in part, this is due to an inclusion crisis, that the other minds, the other possibilities are not present. And could you speak to who some of those people are? And you, you feature many of them in your film. When I was talking with Sophia Moja Noble, author of Algorithms of Oppression, she basically talked to me about a whole different way the internet could work as an artistic tool. And maybe there could be some transparency around it and how you could maybe see the funding backers, that there might be a way that you could select, okay, I want news sources here that are from vetted resources. Maybe over here you are on the commercial sort of section of the internet. And she talked about the ways in which that process might be more transparent to us. I think Zainab Tufeki is one of the smartest people I've spoken to, and she's just brilliant about talking about how we just love the internet. We just hate the invasive surveillance of it. And is there a way where we can have some data rights and bringing that balance of power? Coded Bias centers the voices of women and people of color because I think this is a community of untapped genius within tech to change tech. I think there are seven or eight PhDs in the film, all incredibly astute data scientists and mathematicians. But they were also women, people of color, LGBTQ, religious minorities. They had some identity that was not centered. And I think because they had that view from the margins, they could shine a light on bias and technologies that Silicon Valley missed. And I think that that's really important that we need each other to shine a light on into each other's biases, particularly when you're developing technologies that you're deploying on the world. I know there is a lot of conscientious, well-meaning, brilliant people who work within these technology companies. And it's just my hope that they will obey their sense of true north, their own moral compass, that when they're in rooms where they feel that something isn't right, that they'll actually speak up in spite of what may happen to have that sort of bravery. And it's also my hope that when you hear someone like Dr. Timnit Gebru at Google speaking out, that people will make space to listen. We need people like Joy Bellamini and Kathy O'Neill and Timnit Gebru in the rooms where these decisions are made. I mean, three black women data graduate students essentially changed the policies of IBM and uh, Microsoft and Amazon. And I feel like that's a rally cry for um, more inclusion in the kinds of voices that are making these decisions that impact the world. And I actually have been shocked that tech companies have been so receptive to the film. I was lucky, as, as Tristan said, to screen at Sundance, where we actually had the rare opportunity to see the film with an audience. And someone who worked at Google came up to me afterwards and said, we've been having this conversation with ourselves, and you made a conversation we can have together. And it's my hope that that will happen. I love that. And I, I was going to ask you about the impact that you've seen since the film and you just shared so much. And I actually want to offer that for listeners because while some of the topics that we can talk about on this podcast in general and in the work that we're talking about today can feel really bleak and, oh my God, how would we ever change these systems? And, oh my God, isn't the massive economic interests at play going to suppress change? And, and it's true that they do, actually, as you said in the couple examples that you gave. But one of the things that makes me also optimistic, and I didn't know about some of the screenings you've done at tech companies, 
is that something that actually our listeners can also do is to screen this film in the places of power and to create a shared conversational object and i I imagine, as for you, as it has done, I think, for us, there was actually many people inside of technology companies who had a lot of the concerns that that we've raised also in our work and didn't actually feel like there was an avenue or a safe way to bring it up. In fact, it was dangerous to talk about it. And one of the interesting things that a film can do, it seems to me, is to broker space for that missing conversation. And so I'm just so excited and hopeful hearing you talk about that because it makes me think films really can make this difference. This is not just to create an hour and a half experience and then people go back to their day jobs and nice thing, but really, really change. Absolutely. The making of Coded Bias itself, and I think why I make documentaries, is that it really reminds me that everyday people can make a difference and that not all superheroes wear capes. And I've seen that perpetually in the making of this film. If you told me three years ago when I started making Coded Bias that three of the largest tech companies in the world would change their policy of selling facial recognition to law enforcement by their own volition, I would never have believed you. And I've seen time and time again, whether you're talking about Daniel Santos, the teacher who challenged an algorithm scoring the value-added model, which is still being challenged all over the country to score teachers, or Trine Moran, who not only organized with her friends and her neighbors to keep her landlord from putting facial recognition in in her building, but also inspired the first legislation in the state of New York that would protect other housing residents to do the same. Fast Company called Coded Bias an inconvenient truth for algorithms, for big tech. And I hope that it will be that kind of film that translates science to the public so that we can pass policy. Let's hope it goes a little faster than climate change. (laughs) But it's really my hope. I feel like with, with films like Social Dilemma and The Great Hack and Coded Bias, that we are sparking a conversation And it's my hope that it will lead to a culture of change. When you sit in the dark and you empathize with a character and you go on a journey, you come to care about something. And to me, that that spark of empathy is how social change happens. And films are a place, to me, where they give a safe space where we can have this kind of civic dialogue, where we can have safe discussions with people who think differently. And so it's my hope that that's what the film will spark. And I am so grateful to be working in coalition with the Center for Humane Technology and the Social Dilemma and so many others like the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Algorithmic Justice League, Mi Gente, so many incredible organizations that are working for change. And you can go to the codedbias.com take action page And there's um, so many wonderful organizations that are doing work in the field. There is further reading. um, All of the authors from the film, all of their work is listed on that site. There's an action page and a discussion guide if you want to host a screening. And so it's my hope that people will use the film at their companies, at their dinner tables, in their schools to spark a new conversation. I really just hope everyone leaves here and, and watches the Coded Bias and just thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. And I, and I hope everyone watches it. Coded Bias is on Netflix April 5th. Your Undivided Attention is produced by the Center for Humane Technology. 
Our executive producer is Dan Kedmi, and our associate producer is Natalie Jones. Noor Al-Samurai helped with the fact-checking. Original music and sound design by Ryan and Hayes Holiday. And a special thanks to the whole Center for Humane Technology team for making this podcast possible. A very special thanks goes to our generous lead supporters at the Center for Humane Technology, including the Omidyar Network, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Ball Foundation, and the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation, among many others. 